Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. You get tons of bits and pieces, but it doesn't really start to make a cohesive whole until the later books. If you're doing like a jigsaw puzzle, it's kind of like you're turning over all the pieces and then you're like starting to do the corners and then you're starting to like fit little patches together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good good analogy. And then someone comes over and does a table flip on your jigsaw puzzle. And then somebody chops your head off and uses you to build the puzzle in an <laughs> undead form without using dark magics that you don't understand. Going dark, Ryan. Going dark. I like it. What's up, Soul Taken and Divers? Welcome to the Path of Hands with Phantology. We are covering Dead House Gates, second book of the Malzahn Book of the Fallen, written by Steven Erickson. This actually came out about 20 years ago in 2000. And we have Ryan, our resident Malazan expert, well, at least someone who has read all of the books. And Josh and I have read the first two only. So listeners, feel free to laugh as Ryan schools Josh and I, as we try to make our way through this one. So what's up, guys? What do you think of the book? First of all, I'd like to preface that expert is definitely relative compared to you guys. Maybe I'm an expert, but compared to many of our listeners, I'm probably average or even below average knowledge of Malazan. But besides that, I, <laughs> I like the book a lot. <laughs> yeah, I like the I like this book. Um, I mean, we're gonna get into uh, kind of issues I had with it, but overall, I liked it. I think more than Gardens of the Moon. Judging by the pace with which you guys read the book, I would have assumed that you guys didn't like it. Yeah, that is a personal problem that I had. It took me a long time to read this book. I mean, I think I started back in March or April, and it's now July. So it was like a three to four month process to read through this book. And here's my defense. I tried to listen to it, which really speeds up my pace. And I was unable to. I fell asleep every time I attempted to listen to it. (laughs) Zero understanding of of what I was listening. So I read it. I actually physically read a book, which I don't always do, I I have to admit. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the experience. I think I'm going to try to get back to it. A little bit more. It's just hard to find the time with with uh, some books. But Deadhouse Gates, I'm really positive on. I finished it actually earlier this week, and I've thought about it quite a bit. And if you listen to our Crimson Campaign review that's coming out that Josh and I just recorded, I referenced Deadhouse Gate like four or five times. So I can't shut up about it. No, it was even more than that potentially. I mean, the amount that we usually reference Anderson in these podcasts, Stephen was referencing Deadhouse Gates that much. In, in that episode. That is impressive. So uh, just, I guess, what were some of the similarities between the two books? So without doing too many spoilers for either, I guess I'll, I'll say the main similarity was the whole chain of dogs plot where you have a extended military campaign through enemy territory and the Crimson campaign, you know, the titular event of that book was pretty similar i mean there were many differences but that that was the main thing and then there were some other things we'll just say like crosses and crucifixion was a thing in both books yeah for sure try to be vague there for now until we get into spoilers (laughs) 
Okay. All right. Yeah. So my, my, my journey with reading this real fast, cause you guys went through yours. I read like half of it in January of this year uh, for reference. We're at the ending of July and then Steven hadn't made any progress with it. <laughs> and so, yeah. I, and so I was like, if I keep reading this right now, then I'm not going to, it's just not going to line up on our reading schedule. So then I, I put it on my kind of far back on my TBR and then got through it about a month ago. Yeah, this is, I, I have no excuse other than just a, a busy life, but look, I really enjoyed it and I'm excited to read the rest. This latter half of 2020, we are being completely spoiled with releases that are coming out. So I'm not sure exactly when I'm going to get to Memories of Ice, but I'm really looking forward to it, especially because I've heard that this one, we go back to Genabacus and Drugistan and Dujek and all those other people that we got a lot of hints on in this book. So I'm excited to get there. I completely plan on getting through the rest of the series. I mean, at this point, right, there's eight books left. So I guess we'll, we'll see what happens with my journey. And I probably shouldn't, I, I shouldn't make many promises because I broke a lot already in, in the speed that I promised to read this book and the speed I actually did. It's just like 10,000 pages left. I I feel like we all had drastically different reading experiences for this book. I jumped into it almost immediately after I finished Gardens of the Moon and I listened to it and I didn't fall asleep. But just like in my Gardens of the Moon podcast, I frequently would go and reference the Malazan reread of The Fallen, which is found on Tor.com. And I would I would clarify things as I would after I would listen to them on that, which I think helped me keep good pace and maintain interest and focus on what was happening in the books. So I, like I mentioned before, that's super helpful for however you're getting through this book, whether it's listening to it on audible or reading it. It was a very helpful uh, strategy for me. Yeah. I think if Tor wanted to make some money, they could sell like spark notes editions of these books with the Tor rereads, like after every chapter or a companion book. I don't know how the rights would work that if it was just like, you know, if they're actually staff writers for Tor or they just volunteered, I don't know. But like, I would probably buy that book. Spark Notes, Malazan, Book of the Fallen. Yeah, I like the Tor rereads as well. I think I struggled with them maybe a little bit more than you did because when I try to read them, I end up just skim reading and I have trouble fo- convincing myself that I need to focus 100%. And so I don't get quite as much out of them. I just prefer to read the whole thing. So, you know, whatever to each their own, but I'm glad that we all made it through. I guess, well, I guess we'll see where our journey goes from here, but um, I fully plan on continuing the series. And let me kind of take this in a different vein. I remember in the Gardens of the Moon podcast that we did a little bit ago, actually it was one of our earlier podcasts at Phantology. I remember saying something like, people say Malls on Book of the Fallen is so complicated. And I think that's overrated because... I understood what was going on, blah, 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 like totally arrogant, right? I, I made some kind of comment like this. And I'm going to have to eat my words quite a bit here because this book definitely, I, I think even upped the ante from Dead ha- or from Gardens of the Moon. In Gardens of the Moon, we got hints at a lot of things going on. But for the most part, I understood that, you know, that there were some minor things that I was like, okay, oh, hey, yeah, you know, epic fantasy, we'll get to it. But this book, I mean, there are entire plot elements where I'm just kind of dismissing and saying, okay, I know the names and places and events, and so we'll find out later. I'm just not even going to assume that I'm supposed to understand some of these things. 
Yeah, this takes place in a different part of the world, for the most part, than Gardens of the Moon, as well as introducing almost an entirely new cast of characters. So what were your guys' thoughts on that when you read that? I, that had already been not spoiled for me because I don't think that's really a spoiler, but I was aware of that coming into this book. Okay. Yeah, I knew about that as well. For Somehow, I guess, maybe just in the summary. But I was okay with it. I think there were enough. That, I mean, we still had Fiddler and Crocus and Absalar and Kalam were, I think, the main recurring characters. There, there may have been a few minors. But those four, I mean, there's like references to Quick Ben and Dujek. That was enough to kind of carry it along. And I felt like I got into the new characters really quickly. So I was fine just getting attached to a new cast. Felicin, Coltane, uh, my man Diker, probably my favorite. It's between Coltane and Diker, I think, for my my two favorites. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit disappointed when I first started this book and realized that it was a lot of different characters because I was really looking forward to getting to know whiskey Jack a little bit better in the bridge burners. And I think we do get to learn them a bit better, but it's from a different perspective rather than a first or third person perspective of actually experiencing it with them. We're hearing more about their history and about their lives. Yeah. But I, I did how, like how that made it feel like they were an essential aspect of this world. You know, sometimes and this is this is where Malice and Shines, I feel like you get to hear about events somewhere else, like and realize how big of an impact they actually had. Because even on worlds like Roshar, like you don't really know how how some events impact things way away in, in like Stormlight, you know what I mean? But here you do, like continents away. Yeah, I guess the world becomes extremely expensive extremely quickly. Like Josh with Roshar, the first book start in a more a centralized setting. I mean, it's, it, it moves around a little bit, but you don't know really what's happening from one side of the world to the other and kind of the same with wheel of time. And then by the end, you're like, okay, we know everything about every different country, but we're in book two and two books, two continents. I'm assuming we're going to hit more in future books too. So it, you're right. It, it goes a lot faster. I'm ready to get into the book. I'm excited about this. Yeah, let's get into spoilers. Before we do, if you like Phantology, check us out at Phantology Books at our website, www.phantologybooks.com. Consider supporting on Patreon, join our Discord and chat with us. And please tell us what we missed in this podcast, because I don't even know what I'm going to miss, but I'm sure there's going to be something and we'll have to apologize for it later. So join Discord, chat with us. We have a growing community there. We have merch. If you're into that, you can brand with uh, some Phantology artwork from Mark Wells. We've also started allowing for uh, voice memos, and we're going to respond directly to fan submissions. So if you have questions, comments, you really like some part of the book and you want us to talk about it, we will do that in upcoming recordings. So on our Discord, we're, we're chatting with people and, and letting you know what's coming down the pipeline. So we really want to engage with the community and we are excited to do so. Easiest for voice memos, you can send that to us on Discord. If it's uh, lower than the size limit, you can email us at phantologybooks at gmail.com. You can DM us in the tweets, whatever you want to do to get that to us. Yeah, basically the internet exists and so do we. So (laughs) if 
if you know how to navigate the internet, you will find us if you search for the correct things. So let's get into the book. We do our, uh, we always start with a content warning. So Malazan, in my experience, at least, the content warning is interesting. There is swearing, but really no, uh, there's not any hard swearing. I don't think there's any F words at all or, or anything much worse than that. There is certainly violence, doesn't shy away from that. There's almost no sexual content, or if there is, it's, it's completely off screen. But reading the book just has this like real kind of gritty, dark feel, but I'm not really sure why, because it's not like a, like a Joe Abercrombie where it's in your face. You're, you're so ingrained in the world, I guess, that it, it seems like you are along this helpless, you're on this helpless journey along with the characters. I don't know. Like, what, what do you guys think? Do, were you as into it as I was? Yes. I felt it as, as they're just making their way through the desert and their supplies are getting lower and lower and lower and they're getting harried on all sides by their enemies. It was a little bit depressing at times to read, I think, because of the situation that they were in. Overall, Malazan, I feel like it just has such a high, like the viewpoint is like very detached from the characters in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, and so you're looking down on like all these bad things, like gruesome things happening, right? Okay. Just totally dispassionate. I'm kind of like, like a drone shot. Like if you're to picture a battle, like a drone shot of a battle is like what I picture Malazan as versus like uh, First Law, I picture you are holding the sword like sticking it you know like you're in that point of view mm-hmm. they can both be gruesome but they're just kind of gruesome in different ways and i think malazan does a good job of that of establishing this still gritty scene just uh, much more detached from the actual characters doing the gruesome acts that's a good way to put it it's incredibly immersive right away i felt like every time i put the book down i had to pick a bunch of sand out of my teeth because i had just emerged from the deserts of Raraku. Roraku. Dang it. Roraku? Roraku. How do you say it? Roraku. Roraku. Okay, I'm going to get that from now on. I'm not even going to try. I went to three years of speech therapy for my R's, so that's (laughs) hopeless for me. (laughs) So let's get into the plot. So I'm going to start us off in the prologue where we have Felicin, Bowden, and Hiborik. These are kind of our three characters through at least the first half of the book, they go on a journey of their own. And they are caught up in the current cull of the nobility that the Malazan Empire does from time to time. It starts off with this really vivid imagery of this priest walking down the road. He is covered in flies. And after they disperse, there is nothing remaining. So there's some magic going on right now. It's this really involved kind of disgusting scene and it actually harkens really well to the very end of the book when something similar happens with crows so i thought that imagery first of all awesome i mean black and black but the crows play so much of a part in the book as well and the flies just kind of set the tone for what's going on here perfect loved loved the start and so our three characters here are are having their possessions taken away and uh, going on this forced march out of town This is pretty similar to that scene in Game of Thrones. No spoilers, but you know what I'm talking about. The Walk of Shame. And they are taken to this Otatoral mine at the edge of the Seven Cities in this place called Skullcup. And Felicin, 
who is previously a nobility. I mean, she still is, but she's had everything stripped away. She is the sister of the current adjunct and also the sister of Perrin from the first book. So she has some role to play here. And, and we've seen her family a bit, but they kind of try to survive in this real harsh setting in Skull Cup. I guess before I talk too much into their plots, like, do you guys love this opening as much as I did? I know it bounces around between characters, but let's try to just stay focused on these guys thus far. Certainly sets the tone for the rest of the book. You have a priest of the god of death getting enveloped by flies and then disappearing, and then they literally have to fight their way through this crowd of people, just this mob who's bent on their destruction. It's uh, it, it's very similar to what, what happens throughout the book. It's It's not the happiest book, for sure, and we get the tone set right away. And some of the people, they're all chained together. By the end, there's only like hands and arms remaining on the chains as the mob has ripped people apart and bowed in. This brute thug guy is how we understand him at the beginning, has basically ripped people apart to ensure their own safety. And it's certainly our characters change a lot. They might not change so much as our perception of them changes, but Felison is kind of this innocent young noble woman that changes, I guess, almost immediately in the Odotaro minds. Bowden is this, yeah, like you said, a brute, and Heboric is a scholar, and they will transform. And I think that's interesting how you talk about the chain of the people and it, it's just kind of hands and arms that might hearken or lead into another chain that we'll find out about later in the book, the chain of dogs. Is that what it's called? I forget. Yeah, the chain of dogs. Yeah, the imagery is really good, especially when you look back on it like we're doing. There are so many things that make sense uh, throughout that he calls back to. One, So the change you talked about, the immediate change that I see was in I guess you said Felison, I said Felison, whatever. She immediately becomes a general snot to her friends who are trying to help her. She sells her body to survive. She is this beautiful young woman and she makes use of her charms. This happens mostly off camera, like I was saying. But in order to survive in the in the mines, that's what she does. She gets very attached to that, to the leader there, Beneth. And eventually they are able to escape due to some events that are kind of happening behind the scenes and Bowden and Haboric almost leave Felicin behind because they think she is so far detached from them and she just wants to like live out this crappy life of survival with Beneth in Skullcup but eventually she does make it and they escape from the mines and make their way to the coast to try to meet up with some other characters and this is when the apocalypse happens and we will kind of get into that. What did you guys think of Felicin? Because I kind of struggled with her. Everyone's just kind of united in thinking she's a total punk, right? Okay. For now. Hot take. <laughs> hot take. I didn't take long. Let's hear it. <laughs> this is this is my one hot take for this book. Okay. Felicin was my favorite character in it. Throughout. Whoa. Throughout. Yeah. Really? Even yeah. though Haboric and Bowden are doing their best to rescue her and she is basically turning them down she is because she, she would rather stay with Bennett. yeah 
first of all, this is, in my opinion, kind of believable Stockholm syndrome, kind of Stockholm syndrome done right in a way. I don't know if you can ever do it right, but it's not like tropey, you know, here you get uh, kidnapped and then you fall in love with your kidnapper. Like, here's this guy that like is yes, oppressing her, but like is kind of providing her safety. Like it makes a little bit more sense, right? Than a typical tropey Stockholm syndrome type thing. Okay. Okay. And I like felt like I understood why Felison was doing what, doing what she was doing more than most other characters in this book. So did I like everything she was doing? Did I think that she wasn't obnoxious? No, I, like I thought she was obnoxious throughout the book. I thought that she was like annoying and it was kind of annoying reading about her sometimes, but like, I felt like I understood her motivations more than a lot of other characters in the book. So was it just that you didn't understand what was going on with the plot and with the characters or, or and, and then Felicin was someone that you could understand because she was, was very like, oh, human. human. But yeah. I, I think it was more, I think she was a little bit more humanized than some of the other characters in the book. And I'm not trying to like trash on them or saying that they're like bad characters or anything, but like, I felt like Felicin had uh, more effort put she into. Had, she had the same level of understanding of what was going on that we did as the reader. A lot of the other characters had sometimes millennia of backstory yeah. to them. And so their actions didn't really make sense to us as the reader, but with uh, Felicin here, she is just, you know, a young girl in this world way over her head, kind of the same way we're way underwater trying to read the book and understand what's going on. So I think I see what you're saying. Yeah, maybe that's it. And yeah, her her thing was like, I'm going to do what I need to to survive. And she was she did have some entitlement because she did grow up like in uh, kind of like a royal setting, right? So like, I, I, I think I can just understand why she is the way she is. Whereas a lot of the other characters, they're just being, they're just told to me that this is how they are. And uh, that works, you know, I'm not saying that doesn't work, but I think I just understand her more. And if I read it more closely or whatever, I, I might've gotten that with other characters, but that's what I came but away with. Does, does your understanding make you like her more? I didn't say I liked her the most, but I think I liked her character. the most. You said she was your favorite. She was my, she was my favorite character in the sense that like, I like, I thought that her character was the best done character in the book. I think Josh is just outing himself as an entitled noble. He he really connects with that behavior. <laughs> no, I'm not saying I connect with her or like anything like that. I just feel like more time and effort was put into humanizing her than some of the other characters. I like that. Let's talk about some of the characters who aren't human. So let's go to Akarium, who is a half jagged. And I honestly do not understand everything that's going on with the jagged. I understand maybe Ryan can jump in here, but they are like one of the four founding races yes and they are pretty much all extinct later on in the book we get some more details because there are some massive graves and old cities that they go through and we did see a jag in the previous book as well that guy was a tyrant which i'm assuming is a different type of jagged but ikarium is half jagged so he's not nearly as destructive ryan how'd i do there you got some some things right so yes he's he's <laughs> half jagged and there's a lot going on with ikarium and there will continue to be a lot going on with ikarium throughout the books he's a big huge mystery that needs solving and i think it's perfectly fine to go out of this book and still not really have a clue as to where he fits into the world um, because you're going to learn a lot more about him later and 
I think his character is very interesting and his relationship with Mappo and their dynamic with Mappo being a friend and also a guardian to Ikarium. He's not so much guarding Ikarium as he is guarding the world from Ikarium. And Ikarium from himself a little bit. That's how I read it. Yeah. Getting back to the jagged tyrant from the first book, a tyrant isn't really like a different type of jagged so much as I think it's a jagged who uses their powers to become a tyrant and kind of and enslave other uh, creatures who aren't as powerful as themselves. I, I took that in the first book to be like tyrant with a capital T like a different, uh, fundamentally different type of, of being, but maybe that's wrong. I mean, I, maybe it's that in using their powers, they set themselves apart and become a tyrant, I don't know, and set themselves into a different type of jagged. I don't know. I don't think there's anything physiologically different from okay. normal jaggets and jagged tyrants it's more that their actions set them apart if that makes okay. sense at least that's my understanding Ryan, of it. was one of your microbiology classes in jaggets yes <laughs> i know all about uh erickson published a textbook called the physiology of the jagged i would believe you I if you know. said that i would believe you <laughs> sounds like he's put so much detail into this world yeah yeah so another thing that you that you touched on is yes the jagged are one of these four elder races that are talked about a lot and we don't know a lot about them but most of them are extinct and the jagged are pretty close to extinction they're very few and far between in this at the present time so i think i know all four and i swear i'm doing this off the top of my head and did not look this up before We've got the Jagat, we've got the Talon Imas, we've got the Kachain Kamel, or K- K- something like that, and we have the Fork Rail Asile. How was that? Was Did I get that? That, that was excellent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the way the audible narrator pronounced it was the Kachain Chamal, but I mean, we're splitting hairs at this point. I'm impressed that you remembered those off the top yeah, of your I'm, head. Yeah, I'm killing because... it so far. <laughs> I did not I did not know that at the You're earning your Patreon money there, Stephen. That's right. Got, got to impress the listeners. So, like you said, Mapo has this interesting relationship with him. Mapo is a is is a trell, right? We call him Mapo, but he is a trell is just like another race. They have green skin, I think, and and tusks. Am I right there? And they are journeying together and honestly, I'm not even sure what they're looking for at this point, but they are clued into this thing that's happening, this convergence of Soltaken and divers, which are different types of shapeshifters. Divers are Soltaken that can assume a lot of forms, or maybe they're different. I honestly don't know the complete difference between the two, but there is this path that these beings are trying to travel upon to find ascendancy to become gods. And we don't understand very much about this. This is something that I wanted more of in the book. I'm assuming we will get more in future books. I'm told we will. Eventually, they make their way after some fights. They make their way to this shadow priest temple and Iskaral Pust, who is this enigmatic, enigmatic guy 
who he's a priest of shadow and he speaks in riddles and we don't understand him at all. Really. Maybe you do. If you know exactly what's going on, maybe another read through would make some of what he's saying, make a lot more sense. But honestly, these guys through the beginning of the book, I had zero clue what was going on. Yeah. He's a funny guy. Iskrael Pust. And he has a lot of significance to play in future books. Right now, he just seems like half crazy servant of Shadow Throne, which maybe that 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 probably sums him up pretty well throughout the rest of the series too. So let me just jump on on my my opinion about Icarium. I I like this character a lot too. I it kind of reminded me of a similar situation in. Um, Oh, you're gonna say Lycanius. Lycanius. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Okay. So There's without any without any spoilers there, I thought that that was a similar trope done well in both series. And I like that mystery. I like that you're getting to know this character who seems to be like a pretty chill kind of guy in some like in some ways, but like you know that there's this under the surface bubbling of like, you know, something needs to be contained here. And so I, I dug it for most of the book. And I, I enjoyed when he was on screen. It doesn't help that he's also just unstoppable and can kill anything that he goes up against. Yeah, but that, that's the point is you kind of that makes you like him a little bit more, I think, because he's not out there just seeking out opportunities to kill people. Right. He's like, don't don't fight me because otherwise, you know, it's not going to turn out well for you. Yeah. You, you know, he could kill pretty much everything in his path, but at what cost? And that's why Mappo is there is because he needs to stop. It's it's not good for anybody involved when Ikarium kind of becomes unleashed because nothing can stop him. So I, I don't know. It's 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 sort of the one of the main plot devices of Ikarium. And we don't get that totally revealed until towards the end. But my understanding is that Ikarium has been around for millennia and he has lost his memory through something, not really sure what, but in past lives, well, not past lives, but in like past iterations of himself, he had leveled entire cities and civilizations. And he currently is really peaceful and friendly and wouldn't hurt a fly except when he gets angry. So it's like a whole thing going on. Exactly. One other thing with Iskarel Pust that I didn't pick up on until the end when I was kind of preparing for the podcast, but he is obsessed with brooms and spiders throughout. And you don't get this until the very end, but he comes across with this divers who assumes the form of all these spiders. And this is actually his wife. And so the whole time he was being crazy, but he was also like trying to get rid of all these spiders. And so it was like this ongoing feud with his wife that was happening behind the scenes that you might not even have picked up on. So that was awesome. My impression was that they meet at the end of the book. Well, they do, but throughout the book, he's attacking spiders with his broom. Yeah, and then and then he meets Magora, who turns out to be a diverse who can split into spiders. Right, so that's my assumption that it was her the whole time. I mean, am I off there? Oh, hmm, interesting. So I, I see. So you're saying that Magora is present throughout the book as those spiders and he's like trying to bat them away. It's either that or he's so paranoid that he's got to get rid of any spider he comes across with. I guess either could be true as far as I know. Okay. Yeah. I definitely think that that's true now that you brought it to my attention. Yeah. 
I'm killing it, guys. I'm a, I'm a Malazan expert. Killing it. All right, let's go to an, another. Yeah. Let's go to my favorite two characters. So let's talk Coltane and Diker. So Coltane is the war chief of the Wiccans, who are this horse tribe, basically the Dothraki, and they are now part of the Malazan <laughs> Empire after being conquered by the Malazans. And Coltane is coming in as the new fist of the Malazan Seventh Army. And he is just like General Bade and can do anything. And so he takes on the task of protecting all of these displaced Malazan citizens after the entire native population rises up during this apocalypse thing that's happening. We get a little bit of backstory before the apocalypse happens, but it's really once the apocalypse happens that the story begins. So this apocalypse is started by the goddess Drajna, who I don't understand exactly what's going on here, but she seems to be like some kind of native spirit to the Seven Cities continent or like all of the native populations are involved with her. She has this human avatar called Shaikh and Shaikh is currently alive and requires this book to begin the, to begin the apocalypse. And fortunately Kalam, our favorite assassin delivers it to her as part of his plot. And so once all these things happen, the entire native population rises up, they kick all the Malazans out and everyone tries to kill them. But Coltane is not going to let this happen, and thus begins the chain of dogs that is that is the most awesome part of the book for me. This is observed by Diker, who is the Imperial historian, who's kind of like a normal dude. He used to be in the army. He's kind of cool, but he actually gets a lot more cool as you see how courageous he is, because he's just a normal guy. And kind of like you said, Josh, like same as, as uh, with Felicin, it's nice to see things through his eyes, because that lets you connect with these events that are going on. So what do you guys think of my favorite part of the book? That was so crazy when Kalam delivers the book of the apocalypse to Shaikh, and then she's supposed to open it and it'll start the apocalypse, right? right? And then she doesn't even open it. And the assassin who is following Kalam kills shake with the cross yeah, immediately killed so expectations subverted exactly yes yeah, subverted expectations and then later on who walks out of the i don't know the dust storm or whatever the dust settles and fellison walks out and suddenly everybody thinks fellison is shake and you're like what that would be jumping ahead a little bit but Let's not let's not do that yet because I kind of want to talk through through some other okay. characters. But I I do like where you're going there, Josh. Your reaction on maybe like just Coltane's general awesomeness or the whole situation with the chain of dogs. Would you like here? Yeah, uh, I liked how this is one of those times where you look at a map and you see that this is like part of the empire, right? But like it's not really. And I think that Malazan does a good job of um, helping you understand that like or that like cities are more than chess pieces. Although you might think that, Oh, this is, these are loyal subjects because you know, of where they are on the map, that there's this whole vib- vibrant culture that he's able to give you tastes of. And that culture informs what happens throughout the series. And so I like that. Yeah. The chain of dogs. I mean, the overall premise is really compelling and Coltane. He's awesome. You know, he's like a character that's easy to like, right? Like he's, he's, powerful he's a ba like he's just pretty awesome he has zero flaws zero flaws he's basically he's basically like valen al sorna yeah 
Yeah. And but he doesn't even have a blood song to guide him. Or does so. he? I mean, this guy's got something going on. He's too good. Yeah. The Wiccans are just super cool. Like you said, they're basically the Dothraki. Except how cool was the magic where where uh Coltane introduces the I'm forgetting what's the warlocks, the Wiccan warlocks. Sormo Enoth, I think. Yeah, and they're like, whoa, we thought Lacine killed all those warlocks. And Coltane's like, well, they did, but a bunch of crows came and and took their spirits and put them in babies. And you're like, what? Talk about foreshadowing, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's the second time I've said, like, what in this this podcast. So I'm going to try and stop doing that. But it's really cool foreshadowing and really cool use of magic i think where you have animals approaching and i guess taking the spirits of someone transmitting them to a different body but also lots of symbols of death in this book you have flies you have crows you have what else i mean you have literal shadow demons with one eye and people being people being brought back to life all the time yeah you have hood you you guys know do you guys know who yeah, Hood is the, yet? Yeah, uh, he's the god of death, right? Yeah. Hood is ever present in this book. So back to Coltine really fast. In my head, he was like Vigo Mortensen in that movie Hidalgo. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good movie. Vaguely. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was because I was so like young when I watched it that I thought every movie was a good movie. No, confirmed it is a good movie. Okay, yeah. So that's like in my head who that character was, and like nothing could really change that. I imagine him wearing more black and he's also got a feather cape of crows that he wears. He's probably a little taller in stature, stature, maybe a little more muscular, but I see where you're going for there. Yeah. And the setting fits perfectly. Yeah. It's well, like that might be why sandstorm. I don't know. Just yeah. this baller who's like in the desert kicking butt. So I Googled Coltane oh, just no. now. I, I, am I just so and... wrong? <laughs> There is no, I think I think you guys are s- similar. He's kind of like this stoic, dark character with feather cape, similar things. But I was more interested in this YouTube video called "This Is for Coltane," music inspired by the story of Coltane and the Chain of Dogs from the Dead. Have to give that a listen. Yeah. So, yeah. After this podcast, we should give it a listen, and maybe. <laughs> It should be the intro music for this episode. Oh, gosh. <laughs> hey, if it okay, if it if it's good, I'm I'm down to swap to swap our intro music for that. Yeah. So let's pause on these guys as they try to survive this terrible situation, and let's go back to some characters that we already brought up. These are our friends from the first book: Crocus, Fiddler, Kalam, and Absalar. They're coming to Seven Cities with the dual intents of bringing Sari Absalar back home but also really to assist Kalam in his attempt to assassinate the empress of the Malazan Empire. So yeah, just a casual trip here. And Kalam gets involved bringing this Book of the Apocalypse back to Shaikh. And he kind of does this, in my opinion, or in my recollection, he does this because of his seven cities roots. And he kind of like sees it as his duty a little bit. And this really sets events off. He's tailed by this red blade assassin. And that person immediately kills Shaikh. Uh, her name is Lostra Yil, in case you were wondering. 
the narrator of the audiobook, who is obviously the ultimate authority on all things pronunciation, pronounces her name Lostara Yil. Yeah, I forgot the T. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, Kalam, Kalam also acquires a shadow demon, casual. Uh, this thing is named Aptorian. It's got one eye. I just basically imagine like some kind of dinosaur, like Velociraptor slash T-Rex. Maybe like, uh, what? what's the really cool T-Rex that they make in some of the later Jurassic Park movies? That's what I imagined. Blue. Well, no, blue is just a Velociraptor. But I'm, I'm thinking of the T-Rex Velociraptor oh. hybrid that they make with the long arms. Not that, this, also not ha- that also has like, like DNA of like lions and stuff in it. Indominus Rex. Yeah, yeah, Rex the Indominus Rex. That's like basically that. Aptorian. That, so the Kalam's off in his journey separately. He ends up journeying through this shadow realm. He does a bunch of cool things. And Crocus Fiddler and Absalar are kind of on their own. They journey through the desert for a while. And eventually they meet up with Ikarium and Trell and Mapo Trell, who are at still at the Shadow Temple with Iskral Pust. And that's kind of where we'll leave them for a hot second. And let's go back over to Felicin, Bowden, and Haborik, who are on the coast looking for rescue. They are picked up by Culp, who is our token sorcerer who's going to be sacrificed horribly in this book. And they get picked up, they get drawn into this sorceress battle and dropped into this magical warren and board this undead ship called the Salanda. And this is where I completely lost track of what was going on because what is this, Ryan? <laughs> Yo, come on. You didn't ask me, Steven. <laughs> okay, which, Josh, which what part? is it? There, there are a lot of things. Okay, you Ryan, said. What, what's going on? I, I think I, I, I was okay with the plot of our of our heroes from Gardens of the Moon. But once we got into this undead ship crewed by these Tisti Andy who were all beheaded and their heads were piled up, but their heads were like still alive and they started the drums going and they started moving again. I mean, we're basically into Pirates of the Caribbean here, but even more intense. Isn't it awesome? Oh, it's awesome, but I have no idea. I have zero clue what to expect from this. That's part of why it's awesome is you're just you're just like on a train witnessing all of this crazy stuff. You're like, how is he fitting all of this into one book? So this is when it really started to feel like you can you can understand why, you know, this is like D&D that they just like expanded the world of and like wrote into a book. This feels like a D&D campaign where the dungeon master is just like, screw it. I'm putting them on a ship with headless people now. You know, like that's just kind of what it felt like to me with no rhyme or reason for how they got there, really. It's just like, oh, cool. Now we're going to this really imaginative, cool setting. Man, if this was a D&D campaign, there were a lot of critical failures and critical successes. A lot yeah. of nat ones and nat 20s in this one. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is drinking from the fire hose, you know? You're, you're witnessing small parts of this world, which Erickson and Esselmont created together. So he's getting you, giving you bits and pieces, and you're going to have to wait until book 10 to get most of the pieces put together. Are you together. kidding me? Book 10 for most of the pieces? Well, you're going to get bits and pieces throughout all of it, and I think you'll probably start putting most of them together by book 7 or Okay, eight. yeah, just 7 or 8. 
Steven, it's, it's a commitment. Oh, yeah, I'm going to finish the series. No problem. I got this. It's no. only eight more books. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm no, 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 no. I'm, I'm really into it right now. But at the same time, that is interesting to me. I like, I would expect answers to be doled out in doses. Like into book three, we get some questions answered, but more raised and, and so on. But you're saying like nothing until that late in Ryan. No, I'm not saying nothing. I'm saying that you get tons of bits and pieces, but it doesn't really start to make a cohesive whole until the later books. If you're doing like a jigsaw puzzle, it's kind of like you're turning over all the pieces and then you're like starting to do the corners and then you're starting to like fit little patches together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, good analogy. And then someone comes over and does a table flip on your jigsaw puzzle. And then somebody chops your head off and uses you to build the puzzle in an undead form without using dark magics that you don't understand. Going dark, Ryan. Going dark. I like it. I feel like we just got a spoiler for the for something in the series. Well, we were just talking about... I mean, you know there's some sort of magic involved. Yeah, we were just talking about undead crewmen with their heads chopped off. It fits. All right. Or did Josh? No, did no, you no. Miss that? No, <laughs> no, no, no. I got, I got it. Right. We were just talking about it, but I feel like that's going to happen with a character we like or something. I don't know. Let's just move on. This will be explained further later on. Raffo. It better be. We're on the Salanda for now. A lot of things happen here. We're probably, I'm probably going to miss some details. There's going to be some important things that I gloss over. But my understanding is that, and so the Talani Mass come on, there's a group of Talanamas that come on, they kind of do some magic stuff. And then there's a undead dragon that comes through. Some of the people that are there, some of our humans are now embarking on the path of ascendancy because of the way that they've come into contact with the Warrens and the magic here. There's a rent torn in one of the Warrens. And in this pretty cool scene, the ship catches on fire um, our, our characters are able to escape through the hole in reality, and they land into Raraku. Raraku, got it that time. They land there, and that's where they continue on. And it's like nothing ever happened as far as the Salanda plotline. The Salanda does show up later on and plays a minor role in ferrying some wounded, but we don't hear from it, and and we're not really sure what any of. Just you wait, my children. Just I've you heard wait. it comes back. People on Discord were saying it, it will come back. So I'm looking forward to that. I also thought it was cool we had the dragon going through. So, um, I mean, we saw in the first book, Anamander Rake turned into a dragon. Maybe this is him. Maybe there are other people who can turn into dragons. It's an undead dragon, if I believe. It is an undead dragon. I remember. And so I correctly. guess you're probably telling me that Stephen Rake is not undead. So it's not Rake. But it's maybe it's someone else who can turn into a dragon. Did you call him Steven? No, Rake? I'm saying you're saying Steven. It's not Rake. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Anamander Rake does not transform into an undead dragon. We know that from the first. Duh. Part. Yeah. On, Steven. We should have remembered two that. two together. Yeah. All right. Do I need to spell things out for you? Just kidding. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, you'll learn all so much about Warren's where they were when they were sailing in the Salanda. It, it's pieces of a greater whole. Looking forward to it. And we do pick up more on Warrens in this book. Warrens were a complete question mark for me. In the first book, I feel like I understand them a bit more. In this one, especially towards the end when they're into Tremolor. 
So getting kind of into that plot, Mappo and Akarium and our heroes from Genobacchus are now all together with Pust. And they learn that Pust's servant, whose name is Servant, is actually Apsilar's father through kind of a weird thing going on here with Shadow Throne. And then they all kind of take off into the desert, seeking Tremolar, are also trying to follow Apsilar and her father, who have taken off. And initially, it's hinted that they are setting up Apsilar to become Shaikh, which makes sense for a lot of reasons. But we learn that that is not actually what's going to happen. In fact, they end up uh, getting to Tremolar, which, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ryan, but Tremolar is a warren, and the Azoth house that we saw from the first book in Darugistan that appears there at the end of the first book, there are many of these throughout the world, and they're all connected through Tremolar, which is like this passage through space and time. It's kind of like the ways a little bit in Wheel of Time, except maybe even more dangerous. I mean, the ways are way dangerous because of Match and Shin, but here we've got um, a little more corporeal enemies chasing after you. So this part, I the main takeaway for me here was I thought it was cool that they were setting up Absalar to become Shaikh, but they turned the tables on us when Felicin comes in with Heboric and assumes that mantle. Wow, so that was one big question. Yeah, that's kind of the whole book was, was a bit um, of a question. <laughs> what was your reaction to, to all of that? So Tremorlor, as I understood it, is the name of an Azath house. One individual house? Yes. That house in Seven Cities. Okay. Yes. That that is an yeah, that's an Azath house. And I believe that Azath houses have their own warren. Each one does and they're connected somehow. Yeah. That's actually a part that I don't understand. A hundred percent. You've caught me. This is a hole in my Malazan knowledge. Ryan, come on. I thought you understood everything. We'll, we'll, we'll look this up afterwards. We might add this to our uh, Patreon correction video. I mean, as, as far as the, the Tremolar stuff, that was cool. But uh, what do you think of the, the misdirection with Shaikh? Were you guys as into this as I was? I thought it was cool. You know, I didn't remember it super well. But now that you bring it up, I do I do remember thinking that Absalar was going to become Shaikh and then boom 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 expectations subverted and who becomes Felicin but Josh's favorite I mean who becomes Shaikh but Josh's favorite character yeah, Felicin Josh, this is your favorite character tell yeah. us about this well, well you know this is when it started to kind of lose me a little bit because the same thing happened to Sari like where you know it feels like you have this character that's kind of relatable and then they just get made into a god or possessed by a evil uh, assassin demon thing it seems like you get these characters that you're able to relate to and then they get their whole persona changed because of something that happens to them and they're made cooler like on the on paper but i don't know how well that translates into actual cooler as a character i mean sorry did she re- i feel like sorry for most of how we knew her in gardens of the yeah, moon was yeah yeah, yeah. That's, i mean Pillion. i was and just then- completing that Cotillion leaves and she yeah, kind of becomes normal. Yeah, I was just normal. completing the two, right? Like, but I feel like uh, Absalar, I feel like um, Felicin was kind of like Absalar only done like in reverse, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. 
I think she kind of changes gradually. At first, you think, oh, this is the Felicin that we've known and loved for the whole book. Well, me loved. You guys, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) I was saying it a bit sarcastically. But then as we keep going with time, you you see how she's starting to change a bit and actually become Shaikh. At first, when I read it, I, I thought this was kind of a misinterpretation that Felicent wasn't actually Shaikh, that there was something she was gonna she's gonna pretend to be Shaikh and then somehow it would turn out bad for her later. It seems like Dryjna like reluctantly accepts her to become Shaikh, and then by the end of the book she's full on avatar of the goddess. But she seems to maintain a little more control over her actions than Sari does. Yeah, well, I I mean on one hand, Sari, it's basically Cotillion controlling right. Sari. So Sari, Sari doesn't really, she's not controlling herself. On the other hand, Felicin is herself. And then I think she gradually starts to take on the aspect of Shaikh. So she becomes more and more like Shaikh as Drijna kind of influences her. So one is like a lose there in Randolph Thor situation. Whereas the other is like a, like a possession almost, kind of, yeah. yeah oh, okay, but maybe I might get some pushback. Yeah, I mean, like you have a person influencing you but not controlling you, whereas the other one is like you're not really in control of yourself. Okay, all right, we can move on. Actually, so one other thing before they get there, Felicin and Borak have this encounter with. Grillin, I think is the name of this rat divers that tricks them and literally devours Culp and Bowden, who reveals himself to actually be a Talon assassin. And the Talon were even before the Claw crew of assassins. So this happens right before they actually make it to Shaikh. Just thought I'd, I'd mention that because that was kind of a chilling turn of events there. It was tough to see our guys be devoured by these rats yeah that was a surprising moment to say the least where Culp, i kind of liked Culp, and he's you know starting to figure something else something out something's fishy and then all of a sudden wow he's rat food but uh, erickson doesn't shy away from killing some of these guys i mean let's just get to the end here and speaking of guys who uh their fates may not be the greatest let's go back to our chain of dogs and Coltane and Diker and the rest of our guys here are now winning a series of very difficult battles. We could probably talk about this more in depth, but they are making their way towards Arin, which is like thousands of leagues away on the entire other side of the continent. They have several different enemies and clans to overcome, and they do every time using a combination of explosives and natural spirits of the land and just general being better warriors and better organized and exploiting all of their tiny little advantages. So this part, I mean, like I said, this is kind of what I was here for in this book for the most part and pretty much loved every page of this plot line. Yeah. Although despite every, all the outmaneuvering and the better tactics and better training Things continue to look grimmer and grimmer and grimmer. Yeah, we're almost towards the end. So let's get into the conclusion for each of our group's plot lines. So let's just continue with these guys. So they continue to 
limp along, like Ryan said, gets grimmer and grimmer. And they have some encounters with the Solanda. They have an encounter with this crazy Daru merchant who shows up out of nowhere. This was one of my more like what the heck moments in this series. Shows up in this uh, giant carriage pulled by these huge horses and they bring them some supplies at a very opportune time total uh, deus ex machina here. But I thought it was done okay because we learned that it was at the request of our friends out in Genabacus, so there must be some way that they know what's going on. I guess we'll get that in future books. There was another Deus Ex Machina that I said on Discord I didn't like as much, and that was where one of the tribes just kind of turned on everyone else and said, we respect the Wiccans the most, you guys are the strongest. And like I get it, but at the same time, I don't get it because I didn't feel like there was enough of an explanation to me of who the different tribes were and what their interaction was with Drygedon, how the whole apocalypse thing worked, because my impression was that just every person out there on the continent wanted these guys dead, and then all of a sudden, okay, we we like you, so we're going to help you out. That one I wasn't quite buying, but other than that, I, I was way into all of these victories. I could see why you would think that these these seem like deus ex machina because they might not have been set up very well uh beforehand like like you mentioned but i think looking back reflecting from where i i am at in my vast malazan experience <laughs> i i don't see it really as a deus ex machina but i can i can sympathize all right with you're you. calling me a noob for sure yeah you noob you malazan noob so eventually it doesn't work out for him because they get to within sights of the gates of Arin and they actually get all of the, well, I mean, the surviving refugees. A lot of these guys get killed, but like a significant chunk of the refugees make it all the way across. So very well done. Unfortunately, in order to do this, Coltane has to sacrifice himself and basically all of the Wiccans. And in one of the more frustrating or, or like, the, this was a good moment, but at the same time, it made me want to throttle some of the characters, specifically Malik Rell and Pormqual, the cowardly high fist, because these two have, well, Malik has done this out of, you know, he's evil, but Pormqual is just an idiot. And they have prevented the army from Arryn to go out and help them long enough to where Coltane is overwhelmed by the forces of the apocalypse and killed. And they start to like crucify him and they're going to prevent his soul from leaving but this dude comes up onto the battlements legendary archer or whoever this guy is maybe just some random soldier who's, who's a good shot and he kills coltane his soul is released into the crows and that is the foreshadowing that i was talking about so malik rel evil obviously they call him the gestal priest we're not exactly sure what this means has something to do um with like a specific order of magic or, or, or something i guess we, we don't know yet it was hinted at briefly he's a priest okay. of male who's the god of the seas sure and uh, and he's evil because he was responsible for killing coltane which i cannot forgive him for cue lincoln park in the end <laughs> where it's like you've tried so hard and oh, come so far ouch. but in the Oof. end it didn't even matter uh, but it did. It did matter because the ref the refugees were safe. But then, 
stupid Lord Palmqual or whatever, just total inept commander, makes all of Coltane's maneuvering almost kaput. Yeah, this guy might have been even less likable than Malik. I mean, at least Malik was competent. This guy's an idiot. He gets totally outmaneuvered. I don't know how yeah. he got to be high fist in the first place. Eventually, he gets what's coming to him as he gets beheaded as uh, Malik betrays everyone from Arin as well, except for a few who are smart enough to survive. And then he initiates a mass crucifixion of all of our surviving Malazan people here that get put into this trap, including Diker, my other guy. So Coltane and Diker both killed horribly. Ugh, so real quick, let me, let me jump in me. here. Was this not just like a total kind of Christ moment with with Coltane leading these people through the desert i mean that's like more of a moses thing but then like gets put up on was it a was he on a cross he was kind of on a cross right or just on a pole yeah. or something or at least at least a pole of some kind yeah right and then like he is suffering there and then he gets he dies and then like his soul like just kind of ascends yeah. into heaven right like after he led you know all these refugees through yeah. the wilderness that that was kind of on the nose a little bit, I think. I mean, you're you're combining a few different biblical well, right, things. But yeah. I I don't I mean I I didn't really relate it too much to like a, a Christ like figure. I, I there there is the crucifixion aspect of it, but I guess he's kind of resurrected too. I don't know. I I didn't I didn't really put that together when I read it. I'm seeing it now though. I mean it's it's pretty on the nose from what Josh just said. Yeah. Yeah, I was really worried, though, because when the, all the crows were trying to get to Coltane to carry his soul away, they they were, I, I forget what they were, were they shooting them yeah. down with arrows or blasting them magic. with magic? Yeah. Magic blasts were, were stopping the crows, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was like, no, Coltane, Coltane needs to live right. on. And so that's the good news. It seems like Diker and Coltane will be coming back in some form, uncertain. It seemed like Coltane was coming back kind of similar to how Tattersail is starting to come back at the end of the first book. Like his soul is being reborn. We see a pregnant woman who, you know, the, the crows like come to her and she feels the soul come into her, something like that. Diker had this other kind of deus ex machina thing. It's like magic genie bottle that he was wearing around his neck that you were wondering what this is the whole time it came from the Trigill Trading Guild as well. And then at the end, what was it? It was like Servants of Baruch, I think. The 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 Bacarala mm -hmm. came and they get the magic bottle and Diker. And so I think he's coming back. It seems like it. I guess we'll have to read it. It's like a Chekhov's gun out. thing. We, we've seen it. So now we know he's going to come back in, in some way. You've touched on an important thing, Stephen, which is if you are reading the Malazan book of the fallen and you are very much a supporter of dead means dead, no coming back. Then you're not going to like these books. Um, I think I mentioned this in our gardens of the moon podcast, that death and life are both very fluid concepts in this series. You have people who die and come back. You have people who die and aren't quite dead, like the Talani Moss. It's just a very, very fluid concept. And so I would, I would hesitate 
to think that people who die are permanently dead. Um, just don't be surprised if they come back in one form or the other. I think just Erickson uses it as a plot device much more than other authors do. And so you should kind of come to terms with it well, sooner rather than He also has later, like I think. kind of settings like the, uh, like the spirit world, spirit world, soul world is kind of like a setting, right? Like you go meet the gods of death and stuff. Yeah. So it's baked into more than other books where it's just like, Oh, this guy was dead, but now he's not, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm okay with yeah. that. Is do we know of a thing that like if it happens to you, you're dead, dead in this book, kind of like yeah, like Bale Bale fire or like uh, shard blades. Uh, shard um, blades may or may not kill you depending on which revision of Words of Radiance you read. Oh, <laughs> dang, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know, I I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave that question unanswered. Because Ryan, I love how I, you're I petting know. your cat right now, discussing like ultimate death. You kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's secondhand nature now. When you just cats come up and they demand to be pet, and you're uh, just you, like, you, oh, okay. you don't want to be you dead. dead think about you it. Your cat. They have me well trained. I will say. So let me just close this conversation. With the great words of House Greyjoy, the Ironborn, what is dead may never die. And I assume that's what we'll see in, in the rest of the series. So I, I like that. I think, like you say, Josh, it's it's baked in enough to, to make it believable. So a couple other, let's wrap up the, the two other outstanding plot lines here. So our, our group of heroes is now in the Tremolar, Warren slash Azos house, however, I understand it. I obviously don't understand it completely, but they make their way through. They fight all these enemies who are being imprisoned here. It's kind of like how I, I see it a little bit like uh, the way that the Forsaken are held in the Dark One's prison. Like they're almost encased in this, um, you know, in, in this case, it are these vines that are writhing around these powerful enemies that are, and they're trying to get out. And they do to some extent, and, and there's a lot of fighting that happens. They finally make their way into the house, which is opened by Crocus's Baccarala, who is very conveniently there, kind of another deus ex machina a little bit. Didn't exactly understand what's going on here, but they say that it's a demon. It might be like Baruch is being reborn because we saw him die at the end of Gardens of the Moon. I'm not sure, but it works out for them. Not Baruch. Not Baruch. Um, it's Crocus's uncle. Oh Mamet? yeah, Mamet. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So so we'll see if, what it comes to play there. Anyway, they make their way into the house. They end up in this like world where you can access any different part of it by falling through different tiles, and the group all separates. And Crocus and Absalar and Fiddler make it to Mala's city, where they meet up with Kalam, who has made it there as well after a long journey. And he has been betrayed and is fighting against all of these claw. And he eventually makes his way to a final confrontation with Lassine. And I had no idea what to expect. Like, I thought anything could happen here, getting into this this uh, climax at Malaz City. Oh, my gosh. This book has so much There's stuff a lot. into it. We could, we could do two full episodes easily talking about we all this stuff. We could do way more stuff. than two. We're trying to cram um, it into one. Yeah. 
Uh, so what did I think about the confrontation with Lassine? Well, it, I mean, it blew my mind because Lassine is set up as just like an evil empress who isn't competent and the empire is just kind of going to going downhill since she took over. But after her conversation with Kalam, you see her side of things a bit more, how she really, she really saw Kellenved and Dancer as her friends. And I think it kind of broke her heart to have to betray them, but she was trying to do what was best for the emperor because though they were good conquerors, they wouldn't be good rulers. And so she certainly becomes a more sympathetic character at that point. And so that that was pretty crazy, and so much so that I, Kalam, who has marched across the world to bring uh, Lassine's reign to an end, uh, kind of out of revenge, he decides not to go through with it. Yeah, so that was tough for me, like Kalam coming all this way, and I don't know, like maybe I just don't know his character well enough or understand his character well enough to know if this was fitting or not but this was i don't know if like i had a lot of mixed emotions with reading it i was like kind of let down that he didn't just go through with it i feel like if this was a joe abercrombie book he would have just gone through with it like right (laughs) yes screw it might as well just be realistic about this and kill him anyway (laughs) yeah exactly so just that she could explain it all away with like saying yeah it it broke my heart to do these things and there were there were reasons I don't know if I bought it. I think I have something that might redeem this for you a little bit. So I I read this as a few different... There were some undercurrents here to the conversation. One big thing is she's not even really there. Yeah, right. She's so she was safe no matter what. Corpse. Yeah, and he realizes this. She, I don't think she knew. or I'm not sure if she knew that he realized it or not, but he did. Kalam realized it. He realized there was no way he was going to be able to kill her anyway. So I don't know if he bought everything that he was saying, maybe some. So he just didn't want to play his hand? like. And so, yeah, I don't think he wanted to play his hand here. I think he was maybe like waiting for another opportunity or he wants to investigate some of these things before he proceeds with his mission. But if he was to like rush forward and try something, who knows what could have happened? Because if she's powerful enough to talk to an animated corpse, like anything could be waiting. Maybe even Kalam, who is pretty much unstoppable as well, might not go too well for him here so that's how i interpret it and that's why i was okay with it because i'm with you josh if he if lessine was just to be able to talk her way out of it and Kalam walks away peacefully that's lame but if there is another undercurrent and reason why it's happening then that's cool and and i did come away with that too of like oh well he wouldn't have been able to kill her anyway but i i didn't pick on pick up on the fact that he realize that like i didn't know when he realized that i guess i didn't realize that that made a decent his decision for him it must have at some to, to some level and i don't think we're entirely sure at least i'm not entirely sure but i feel like it influenced it okay all right all right i didn't hate the scene regardless i thought it was a well-structured scene i thought you got some big payoff moments um with how the scene was structured and the the emotional impact that it had on me as a reader was still prevalent so that's pretty much the book there's a few loose ends to tie up here i don't think we're going to get to all of them we have some characters we think are coming back we have felicin is full on shaik now she brings her army to rn they end up going back into the deserts of raraku and uh tavor's 
army is approaching seven cities as well. So we're probably going to get more of a showdown here between these forces in future books. Sounds like Memories of Ice takes place back in Genabacus. So I think we're going to uh, press pause here from, from the people we know, at, at least maybe some of them. I, I don't know. Anything could happen, really. But that's a wrap for the book. And, and let's go into our worst of the best segment. We just have a few minutes here, but uh, we're just going to briefly talk about something that was our favorite, but like one little thing that kind of nitpicked on us enough to the point where we were like, eh, that could have been better, but it was still cool, but maybe it could have been better. I tend to kind of talk myself out of my worst things if I talk for long enough, um, which you can tell I'm, I'm kind of good at. But uh, I'm doing Brian, already. Josh, yeah, you guys, you guys have a worst of the best for us. Let's hear it, Josh. All right. Um, for me, the way that uh, Felicen's story arc progressed and changed kind of so fast. Like um, I talked about how she was um, my favorite character. And I think that's because at the beginning of the book, we were allowed to sit with her and get to know her as a character without plot just happening around her like all the time. But then that started to change. And so that's kind of just out of the whole book, not one specific instance, but I kind of wish we would have, could have left her in more of a static setting and gotten to know her character better before just throwing her into, like I talked about earlier, um, these plot things happening to her. Ryan, you have one. I like that one, Josh. There's really no time. There, there's no time to press pause and just learn about someone like, like you would in some other epic fantasy where we're sitting around chatting for extended periods of time. You know, I do not have one. It was, it was all, all the amazing. best for you. Okay. I have, I have one. I kind of talked about some of the deus ex machina that I didn't like quite as much. Ryan called me a noob for doing that. So I'm not going to go to that, but noob. I'm going to say my worst of the best was the word ochre or ochre, however you pronounce it. That word is in this book way too much. And <laughs> I really, I really love this setting. I love the desert setting. I could picture it so much, but like every page, okay, not every page, but at least every chapter, the desert or some color was described with the word ochre. And I think that you don't need to be quite as verbose as Erickson likes to be. I mean, it shouldn't take a thesaurus to read this book, sometimes a dictionary. Well, it, it would be a dictionary if you're trying to read it. He probably used a thesaurus, or maybe he's just incredible with his wordplay and has an amazing lexicon. And I'm trying to throw out big words that I know right now to revenge, to, to get revenge here. But I thought it was too much. And let's just come up with some simpler ways to describe it and make it like a little more accessible. I feel like the plot itself is already difficult enough that the sentence structure, and I'm even going further into the writing, but sometimes the sentence structure bugged me. And the the just the word choice was too much. And I'm on a full-on steam head. I, I have a full head of steam here into my rant, but I think the writing was like not my favorite technically. So that's my worst of the best. Loved a lot of it. Loved the plotting, loved the setting. But like the actual details of it, like I could nitpick it. Hot take from Steven. I never noticed the word. It's in way too much, man. Do like a, a find on a on, on the Kindle app or something. I'm gonna tell you there's at least 30 uses of that word. And that's a word that's like maybe not in other fantasy series at all in the entirety. Like, and, does that word appear in the Wheel of Time at all? I don't know. Probably not. And are they able to survive as a fantasy series without the use of that word, Stephen? Yeah, well, they are. But And I, I know I'm being overly critical, but I think this should, I'm just trying to say that this is an example of what really kind of bugged me about the series a little bit is that the writing is too complex and makes it too inaccessible. And I think that there exists a series that's written 
with the same level of plotting complexity that has everything that Erickson is going at, but also is easier to read. So I could actually listen to the book and not have to focus quite as hard. And that's what put me straight to sleep. I just did it. I looked up ochre in yeah, my Kindle many? app. You said I said I said thirty. 30. Josh, well, I don't know. I, I I didn't even notice the word. So let's just. So Josh is saying under. Well, no, yeah, under thirty. Twenty-four. Uh, okay. Well, Josh wins. But come on, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, that, no, that, that's that is, pretty good. That is a more accurate guess. Than, I, yeah, I that was is surprised. More accurate guess than I would have been able to make. I was surprised by how much that appeared. So rant justified. So. Rant justified. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, rant, I would rant say is that accurate. Rant is I don't know about justified. I mean. I don't know if that really hurts the writing quality of the book. I think it does because it makes it hard for people to read. I Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't think his, okay. A, a little bit of pushback. I don't think his sentence structure and his use of the word ochre is what makes Malazan hard to read. But it makes it harder. I don't know. It's like if you're on like a hard hike and like, and there's also a rock in your shoe the whole time. That's no, it would, it would be like, I don't know. And you have the wrong type of sunscreen or that you don't like. Like it smells weird. I, like think, that, it's, I think it's worse than that. I don't there think it's worse. There are times where like literally it's hard to know exactly who's speaking because it's been a while since you've been updated as but to that's, who's that's not in the, the sentence scene structure. And, that's the complexity of the book coming into play. Well, okay. That was an additional example. I'm trying to give you even more ammunition. I'm trying to get myself even more ammunition as if I wasn't already strung up enough on this. There are times where the sentence structure is is weird. It's just awkwardly phrased and there's like too many commas. I don't have an example offhand and feel free to, to kill me on this. Well, your awkward example was pretty accurate. So I'll give you props on that. Yeah, yeah. Give me give me a little bit of, uh, of credibility here. Anyway, that doesn't take away from how... I, well, it maybe took away a little bit. It obviously <sighs> did. But I still really love the book. I was way into this book. I agree. And as we leave, I just want everybody to remember Coltane and Diker and the chain of dogs and the heroic battle across the desert of Roraku and all that they sacrificed their lives. And the associated for. YouTube video with thematic music that we're going to yes, listen to. This is for Coltane. That <laughs> we're going to get our first copyright claim or whatever. <laughs> Cue outro. This is like a four Sparta moment for Ryan. <laughs> This is a song for Colton. Yes. All right, thanks, Josh. Ryan, this has been a fun review. I think we had fun with this one. We all really like the book. If you like Phantology, check us out on socials. Check out our Discord. Please join us. Uh, chat with us more. We'd love to have you on our community. And we will see you guys next time. Memories of Ice. I I'm not going to promise one. Is it, this isn't looking great for a 2020 release. Like, I'm going to be honest, it's probably not. Are you so kidding much. me? What are we turning into? Patrick Rothfuss here? <laughs> no, we've at least read something the past six years. <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. I mean, we got like Dresden. We got we well, Rhythm of War. We have, we have Trouble with Peace coming out. There are, let's see, Black Song, which is a lesser known, but that's an Anthony Ryan sequel to the Valen Sorna series. There's some more too. I'm, I'm forgetting. There's There's... A Rage of Dragons sequel. Yeah, Rage of Dragons, November 10th. There is the finale of The Poppy War, or maybe the finale. She said she's writing a book for. Anyway, there's a lot. So we, we got to cover all those things. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. We'll try for it. We'll try for a 2020 release. We'll see. Anyway, 
we, we can guarantee that there will still be good content coming out from Phantology through the end of the year and onward as, as we continue to grow. So thanks, Josh, Brian. See you guys, see you guys next time. Thanks, Steven. Bye-bye.